thank you for joining the Back from the Future podcast. We hope you enjoy what you hear. One of the th- of the things that has been happening over the last week or two has been VOIP insecurities in Zoom. A couple people in the industry have been saying that it's not as bad as we think it is because everything has vulnerabilities. And and that's true. But it seems like Zoom has had some really bad ones leading to things like Zoom bombing and other interruptions in meetings with schools, in meetings with normal folks. In the course of business, they've been Zoom bombed with pornography and things like that. What do you make of this? Do you think it's kind of been overblown? I am actually surprised. I've been using Zoom for about two years. We actually switched to Zoom from a different platform. I think we were using WebEx for Isaka for our meetings and Zoom was attractive because it was so cheap and it just worked. It, it was nice and it was simple. It was web-based and there were no problems with it. No one was complaining about it. We used it rock solid. We even had 200 people on it. There was no Zoom bombing, no Zoom issues at all. It just was the like little app that worked. Maybe this COVID stuff has brought Zoom to the main light. That's why it's being attacked from the like um, researchers. But I thought it's strange to me how it's being singled out right now. It's been out for about two years. And I think it's kind of silly in that fact, because for two years, no one complained about this software. It was still being used by nonprofits, by the enterprise. So I don't really know, you know, where all this hate came from. Not I'm sure if it's propaganda or if it's not as bad as they say it is. Yeah, I definitely think that it had a target on its back just because it was free compared to a lot of the other solutions that are out there that most companies pay for. Like, is this the cost of it being free? Is they didn't put as much effort into securing it initially or thinking out some of these issues? Because one of the things that they were doing was they had the meeting ID in the title bar of the window. And when people would take screenshots during the meetings and share these, say on social media, if the meeting was not password protected, people could jump into the meeting. And that's how a lot of these bombings were happening. So they actually had to hide that away in a little icon at the top left. But I was in a meeting just this Friday in a Zoom meeting, and it still had some information in the title bar. So I'm not sure if that's something like you have to update your client to see or what because I did see the little icon in the top left as well with the exact same information. Yeah, I'm not sure because I work with different, you know, vendors and also, you know, with Isaka and, and Zoom's been pretty good. It, it um updates on the back end once the Zoom meeting is done. But I want to know like who is taking pictures of these Zoom meetings and then putting them on Facebook. And and my next question is was the problem that folks were like making Zoom meetings and then sharing them. And then just because you saw the a meeting ID, you could then type in that URL and then bomb it, you know, or bomb it just as long as the meeting was actually happening or if the meeting was over, would this not be an issue? No, you got it right. So the issue was if the meeting didn't have a password and you got a hold of the unique number at the top, you could just jump in. Now, our Taekwondo place was doing this because they wanted to make it easy for kids to join the classes. Now, I don't know if they ever experienced any bombings, but I do know that 
for the longest time, they didn't have a password on their meetings. So if you had the unique URL, you could just join. That is definitely a flaw. But again, I'm surprised that this did not come out in the two years prior. Zoom got their foot in the door by it being free, but it was free with some with like a 45 minute limitation. And for that reason, maybe that's why it wasn't really gaining much traction or maybe no one was actually using it before this pandemic. In fact, I'm surprised the like biggest thing for me is why Zoom got all the attention and why didn't Hangouts or Skype or even Teams, like why did Zoom suddenly rise to the top? I agree. I I think a lot of it boils down to it being so cross-platform. If you think FaceTime is only for Apple devices, people kind of associate Hangouts and some of the other apps that Google has with Android devices. Plus, those are more mobile-centric, where Zoom kind of started life on the desktop and then went into mobile. So a lot of the times, a lot of the people hosting the meetings, like in the case of our Taekwondo place, they're hosting it on a laptop that's sitting there. So you don't have to worry about battery issues. You can see everyone else. It's easier to see what you're recording. So I believe that because you could just get in anywhere, including mobile, that it rushed in popularity compared to any of the other platforms. I see. Well, I mean, that could totally make sense. I can buy that. But I guess, yeah, it is pretty crazy how, you know, because I was like, I thought it was a I'm not Asian because, like I said, I've been using Zoom forever. It, it's been pretty good. The like free features um, work, but they do have a, a paid tier option that breaks past that 45 limit time thing they have for the actual Zoom meetings. But I did see, you know, they are actually being pretty serious in, in trying to fix this. So what have they been doing? So I forget the woman's name, but she runs a bug bounty company and she's huge on Twitter in the InfoSec space. They brought her company on to basically conduct a bug bounty program. So they yeah. bring her in to run this bug bounty program, which she started Microsoft's bug bounty program back in 2013. And then she went to independently found her company in specializing in in this. It's Lutz Security. That's pretty cool. That's a way to get your name out there is to take advantage of of this current crisis. But I think, you know, I think it's some kind of a big deal in the security landscape. But those outside of IT have no idea this is actually going on. They just continue to use the like platform without a care in the world. Definitely. And I mean, it is really, it's really helped enable the remote work culture during this pandemic, this crisis. How has working from home been for you recently? It's been pretty good. But before I get to that, Zoom did make a big move. You know, they did hire the ex-Facebook security chief to take care of all of the security features in Zoom. And his name was Chief Alex Stamos. He's now an advisor for Zoom. So that's a pretty big win if you got the ex-Facebook CISO now to be taking care of your platform's problems. So I think, you know, this is um, going to be closed pretty soon. All of these gaps, and I guess it's on growing pains. One scary thing I, I did read in on the news last week was basically when um, they were making the product, 
security was not in the forefront of their programmers' minds. It was kind of a baked on thing after the fact, you know, which we all know, you know, it's not the ideal coding practice, but seems to happen more often than not. So I think, you know, in the, um, I think this is a short-term thing. And um, now that they got some real muscle behind them, this will be a um, problem of the past because they've had crazy growth. I mean, I mean, Zoom's win was Skype's loss, Google Hangouts loss, because, you know, Skype should have been huge in this space, but they just dropped the ball just like they've done with them so many other things. And same thing with Google, you know, they've got Hangouts and they've also got Duo and that's cross-platform. So they already had it in. They already had the Android ecosystem. So once again, asleep at the wheel. But to go back to your question, DJ, yeah, I think the working from home, it's not been a big change for me. I've been working from home, I guess, since January. And it's, well, I am, take it back. I take it back because um, I, I was traveling probably up until March. So I didn't have that much time at home. But this was the first time, you know, where I didn't really have a um, office to go to. Like uh, my office was a coffee shop. It could be Starbucks, it could be the library, it could be lots of different things. But now that, you know, I'm stuck at home, the home office, it's been okay. I live in, in a one-bedroom apartment, so it's not ideal in um, some ways because my desk is my kitchen table and I've got, I don't have like the right chair, so my back is killing me. <laughs> My back is killing me at the end of every day. Like it, it like cramps up, but I don't want to, you know, um, bring for a, a like chair with lumbar support. Cause like I said, this, this is a, um, one bedroom apartment. So but the working from home, I, I mean, it's okay. And I would say, you know, I am much more productive at home than I am in the office, but I did like coming to the office just so I could catch up on my coworkers lives or I do like going on site with a client just so I, I can have that FaceTime. One thing that I am thinking about is saying like, okay, are companies now going to get rid of offices since they've seen or been forced to, you know, get a fully remote workforce? Are they still going to want to pay for all of that land in those offices that they lease? Yeah, it's definitely a good question. I've seen a lot of posts on social media, especially in LinkedIn world, of people talking about now that they've been able to work from home for, um, in a lot of cases, a month or more. Now, when they're looking for new opportunities, they're definitely going to be pushing that forward as a benefit that they would like either to partially work from home or in some cases fully work from home as they have for the past several weeks. So, if a lot of companies start going that way and offering that as a perk, I could definitely see on-site offices shrinking and co-work spaces getting smaller. I think it's going to definitely slowly start to change the economy of how office workers work. If you think about how it was back in the 90s, where you had what they call cubicle forms, and now you have this open office trend going on. A lot of people aren't happy with the open office trend. And now that they've had a stark contrast, as you mentioned, with fewer interruptions, you get to work in technically whatever you put on that morning and just walk straight into your office. You don't have to drive. There's so many added benefits 
that I think that we could see an impact over the next six to 12 months, especially with new positions going more remote. Okay. So that's a good point. But I think, yeah, maybe we will see that. But, you know, me and you, we we are different. I can be an extrovert. So I like going to the office and like that FaceTime. You're more internal, more of the introvert. So I still like offices. Now, I do have a caveat that says, you know, I'm not a fan of the open office plan. That to me just feels wrong. Like I could deal with the cube farms and the cubicles because, you know, I had some privacy and if the walls were high, you know, that was even better. But I don't know, like I'm just not a fan of open office plan. And in fact, I am read an awesome article. It's probably last year or like shortly after I I was forced to work in um, the open office platform where basically people they get less work done on the open office farm, A, because there is no like privacy. You can see what everyone else is doing and, you know, you know, sound echoes, sound bounces. And what people do is they start to actually put barriers back in place. The first barrier, and you've seen it all too well, is what is the first thing that folks do if um, they don't want to be disturbed? Yeah, they put in their headphones. Put on the headphones instantly, right? Okay, okay. That's the first thing, right? Then you're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. We just got this space and people are like supposed to be talking and ideating. I hate that word, you know, sharing ideas, you know. Um, And then, you know, what's the um, second thing that um, you think they do when um, they try to um, retreat from the open um, space offices? Go find a small closed off space. As you know, when you worked with us at Blue Cross, they have those little miniature glass offices and you find a lot of the time people going over into those because you can't have a meeting with a vendor out in the open because it's so disruptive to other people. Yeah, the um, unanticipated or unplanned for consequences, you know, without consulting human behavior or like human psychology, you know, they just kind of foisted this upon us. These are the reactions. Going back to like working from home, you know, I am more productive if I get in the right flow and the right zone. I have to like put my phone away, put my phone in like some other room. So I'm actually concentrating on work. My phone is the biggest productivity killer for me and like probably for like most of us all. But the last thing that I thought was just crazy with the open floor plan was people actually started to rebuild their actual cubicles. So if they had an open desk, they would start to like find blocks or or posters or things that they could stack up around them to recreate the actual cube. That to me was the most crazy thing. We've done everything we can to make people work together more, but people rejected outright. Yeah, I know the open floor plan was put in place to foster more communication amongst team members and make things flow better, but it never got rid of meetings. And to me, meetings are the primary driver of connecting people together to discuss things. Like right now, you and I are meeting for this podcast. You can't get away from that sort of paradigm just by going to an open floor plan layout. Yes. And I'll give you an example of that. The thing that I hated about the open floor plan was kind of, I guess you could call it a meeting bombing where basically 
someone would just show up at your cube and just kind of start talking to you. And, and you could be head deep in code or head deep in work. And then somebody just stops at your um, desk and expects you to drop everything. Like there needs to be like open floor plan etiquette, something that's taught to uh, employees, you know, like saying like, you know, just to stop that, because that was just as bad where folks could just think that um, they could just stop at your desk and just kind of stare at you. And if you don't stare back, you know, you're considered rude or or a jerk. It, it's crazy. Definitely. Kind of leveraging off this to go back to the Zoom meetings. It seems like no matter what meeting you're in, be it a Zoom meeting or a WebEx or something similar to those, there's such a latency issue that you're constantly talking over one another. At that uh, point, I almost favor yes. in-person meetings again. I almost look forward to them. Yes, you are 100% right on that. And I don't know, maybe it's just the like nature of these things where we've had WebEx, we've had Zoom, we've had Skype, we've had all these different platforms for years. And there's still the like talking over each other or who's supposed to talk first, who's supposed to talk second, or if there's lag, you have to deal with that. It's a nightmare. It, it like is. I'm just surprised, you know, we've not figured this out yet. Yeah, there is sort of an etiquette that you have to have. You obviously can't go to a online remote meeting with the same etiquette you would have in a in-person meeting. You have to allow for that delay. And when you start factoring in, say, in my case, when I call into a Teams meeting, I'm actually going from my computer to the virtual computer through Citrix, and then that's communicating back with the server. I've got three or four different links that I'm going through to actually get my voice into that meeting. And there's other people that are on a, a VoIP phone that's crossing a VPN back into a network that's then going into Teams to get their voice back in there. You've got several hops that you have to account for. So you almost need to use the raise your hand feature to let someone know that you're ready to chime in that's a good point but in um my zoom meetings no one ever uses that unless it's a webinar not an actual meeting so those hand icons i never see those that's just me where i'm blind but i like never notice when someone puts their hand up yeah most people don't use it most people try to attend an online meeting as if it's an in-person meeting and i think that comes down to if you have a company culture that is the bedrock of that company is in-person meetings it's hard to teach or change the culture to go to a more remote meeting configuration well you are right but this COVID 19 it's basically thrust the entire workforce and education system, you know, and medicine into this new virtual world in record time. You know how they used to say, this can't be done. We've got rules. We've got policies in place. You saw all those things get ripped out. And now this new present that um, we're living in, you know, all those complexities or like naysayers, they've gone away. And, you know, it's, it's uh, remarkable to me how fast we've been able to switch to everything is now virtual. I mean, it's uh, remarkable. You know, most times these things take years and years, but this happened in a month. Definitely. A lot of companies have done a very good job in being able to quickly 
change to a remote configuration for their employees. So speaking of companies that have went into remote work, Google and Apple are now teaming up, oddly enough, to create a contact tracing, I guess we could call it, what would you say? Contact tracing beta program, I guess, you know, it's a contact tracing Apple-Google collaboration. Yeah, this is interesting. Do you think it's a little too late? I mean, I know that they couldn't start before the pandemic started, obviously. You can't tell the future, but do you think it's a little too late to try to get in there? Because a lot of places are looking at stopping their lockdown in about two to four more weeks. Do you think this is going to have the effect that they hope it's going to have? People are interesting things, right? So part of me says like, guess what? This program was actually done in South Korea and in Singapore. And it was successful there because it was required from the government. This wasn't kind of like, it's up to you to like install this and to turn this on. Their governments basically said, you know, this is a mandate. They were able to use that to great success what they did was you know i'm guessing isn't going to work the same where basically if you're in touch with them someone or if you're in proximity to like someone and you're self-reporting boom it's effective but in this country i just don't see this thing getting legs like it might work or it might not but i'm thinking and relies on both apple users and android users you know saying uh Yes, I have COVID or, or no, I do not have COVID. And then you opting in and then sharing this data. And a lot of people aren't comfortable with that. Or I think my gut instinct is a, like, a lot of people do not want to give up that type of privacy. Yeah. I was thinking when this happened that, like you said, a lot of people don't want to give up their own privacy for the sake of reporting something to an app. Some of the backlash that has come from a couple people in the security space from this is the chance that there will be not false positives, but false information. Say someone attends a, a concert and their phone was in close proximity to several other hundred people, and then they can somehow make a false claim that they had COVID. Now you've got a huge influx of people, practically everyone at that concert now technically needs to go get tested even on a false claim. And you don't know that it was a false claim. I think one of the key flaws in this is going to be that it's not a verified reporting. Oh, see, I did not even think about it in that context, but you make a good point or this um, thread you follow. Yeah. Which is a good point. So if um, someone could intentionally lie or the opposite, not even report when they have it, you could have dire outcomes. So I think this really has to be fleshed out and all possibilities, you know, need to be worked out before it's kind of thrown at us. Because part of this stuff is if you give up this control, what liberty or what privacy, you know, what part of us will we give up next? And I know this is, you know, it's in the name of safety. I want us all to be safe, but I think you need to have a um, right oversight on this entire program, some type of third party 
nonpartisan program that can govern this and also, you know, make sure it's done right and it's done ethically and to reduce any type of false positives to the to like nothing. Yeah, I agree. There needs to be some sort of validation measure either with an EMR system, but that would be hard to bake in because you have so many disparate EMR systems. I think Apple could kind of pull it off with some of their health kit services because they've integrated with a lot of major EMR platforms, but it still takes, like you said, it's an honor system. Right now you have to report it. So if you don't, it's like insecurity. That's a false negative. Yeah. Let's say someone is scared to report because they feel like if they're out with their phone and then they're just walking, then you're like crossing paths, you're jogging, you know, and then you cross paths and then someone's phone starts beeping and you're saying you're in touch with someone with COVID. What are the long-term effects of that? Will like people shun other people or let's say like you do have COVID, right? And your phone has been activated and you, you just step out or your phone's like, is um beaconing you like Bluetooth, right? And it's just, you got a whole apartment complex that's kind of spooked out because they're saying like, oh, who is it? Who is it? And then you start to look at all of your neighbors with some type of suspicion. Right, because the system is supposed to, to be anonymous. So you won't actually know yeah. who had it or who didn't. Another interesting point that Steve Gibson brought up on his Security Now podcast was how if you're, like you said, if you're in an apartment complex and your next door neighbor leaves his phone or her phone on one side of the wall wow. and your phone's on the other side of the wall, yeah. technically, even though there's a wall there, Bluetooth, even low energy Bluetooth may still show that you were in close proximity to this person. And you don't know if there's people living above you, people living below you. Yeah. I mean, this could turn into a chain of false positives in a way because everyone is in such close proximity. It's not like everyone lives out in the suburbs. You're far enough away from everyone else that you probably won't get a lot of that. It's great for if you're going to the grocery store and you pass someone. I think the algorithms are going to have to account for a lot of different scenarios. And this is being put together so quickly. The security is there. The anonymous factor is there. But maybe there's some other things that haven't been thought out quite as well, like proximity. I agree. I think there needs to be some more, more work behind it before it's fully pushed out here. Until you can get this down to a 99 success rate, you don't want to have people being blacklisted or admonished if um, the data is wrong. And that's just not fair. So I think well, it's a great idea in theory and it'll help slow the spread. I mean, it's grounded in saving us, which is awesome. But I still think I'd like to see some oversight over it and to see kind of like more how it works to like stop these false positives, just like you said, and the opposite, the negatives. So cool tech. But again, part of me still feels like, okay, if we go down this path, what else are they going to turn on without telling us, you know? Yeah, I definitely agree. So to switch gears, Telegram has been in the news again recently because a server was found on the internet by a research company that was found with millions of records of people living in Iran. 
And now it's turned into this huge debacle of how many non-Iranian people were in this database and what does this compromise mean for Telegram? I've heard in the past rumblings about Telegram being insecure because their encryption algorithms were homegrown and that's something you never want to do, even Mm. with testing. Because a lot of these algorithms we rely on today, as you know, have been time tested for 15, 20 years before they actually catch traction in the industry. So for Telegram to go their own way and claim that they brought in industry professionals to make this for them, and that's the reason it's more secure, is just security through obscurity. That's insanity. So you're saying like, instead of them using the tried and trusted, you know, battle hardened encryption is the tech, they went and outsourced their encryption piece to some third party. And now they are relying on the third party's good word to say like, yeah, this is good. You're good. You're like privacy is safe. You got nothing to worry about. That's kind of scary because I've been using Telegram for a long time. Maybe I need to uh, revisit that. So what are like, okay, what's going on? Basically, this um, story is that people in Iran, they um, had this app, they um, thought they were secure, but were they not secure? Has this encryption been cracked? So it wasn't necessarily the encryption that was cracked in this case. I was just saying that that was in the past. What happened was 42 million chat accounts or records were found on this server by a company that was doing security research. And apparently, and I didn't get into how this happened, but it looks as though Telegram was allowing another company to use their protocols. And this other company had an app out and the other company left this server in the open. And that's how it wasn't necessarily compromised. It was stumbled upon. And because they did not have end-to-end control of that entire platform, it was a third-party leak, basically. Gee, see, that's crazy. So, uh, (laughs) and I'm seeing, like, basically, yeah, once they got into this stuff, your data could be, wait, this allowed the actual accounts to be cloned. And then with those with those cloned accounts, you could spy on private communications. And the worst part about it was some of these accounts that got compromised were then taken over to spread misinformation and propaganda. That is scary. I would like you to do like a deep dive in to this because, yeah, that's insane. And it just kind of goes to show once again, like, don't just roll your own encryption and expect it to be good or do it this company did and share this with a third party without trying to vet this third party or make sure that the third party, you know, doesn't use this for nefarious purposes. Right. Yeah. This shows the importance of owning. If you're going to be a secure platform, which Telegram tried to market themselves as, and I don't recall if they came out before or after Signal, but Signal is very similar in this space. And Signal actually does an incredibly good job of getting the protocols right and then controlling the whole thing end to end. And I think they were purchased by Facebook a couple years back. That's actually what now underlies Messenger and some of the other apps that Facebook owns. Without confirmation, I would like to think that if you were to use the official app, which 
runs on their own protocol that you should be fairly safe from this sort of thing, but you can't be perfectly sure if the person you're messaging has not some is not somehow using a third party application that may be compromised. Yeah, and the third party got compromised by the Iranian state, so that's a slap on the hand. Well, <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, I like Telegram. It's a great app. You know, it's never down. It's always working. It supports animated GIFs. I mean, come on. Come on, Telegram. Let's, let's get your act together. Stop this other company or shut down these uh, third parties or this will happen again. The uh, topic this week was kind of how we got into cybersecurity. I'll start back at see. I've been in cyber now for seems like about 10 years in total now. It was, you know, uh, not too long after I met you, DJ, when we were working for a managed service provider. I was basically, I was um, at the time I was, I had to take the security plus as part of my um, required courses for my bachelor's, I had to take like, you know, four CompTIA classes and the security plus was in one, one of the um, CompTIA classes. So once I picked up the study guide, it was actually the third edition of um, Daryl Gibson's sec plus study guide. I just kind of read that book in a weekend. I then like took the test on Monday or Tuesday. And I was like, this is really cool stuff. My like background was um, PC work on a break fix, did some sysadmin stuff, some um, server admin stuff or some SMBs. But one thing that I liked was this was like a whole new world for me, learning all of this security terminology, all the stuff that goes in behind the scenes of actually securing your computer and then securing the network and everything else that goes with this. So I kind of dove head in. I, I was seeing like, okay, um, you know, what's a job where there'll be growth within the next five or six years? One thing that I'm always doing in my own career is saying like, okay, what's going to happen in the next five years? What are the trends? How is the landscape changing? So I pretty much dove head first into studying cybersecurity. And like I said, I was pretty green at it. But one thing that made me think this was super cool was I, I was working on a case for a client and this client kept calling us saying, Ian, my computer's got malware on it. And I said, how is this possible? We just formatted your computer yesterday and we just put AV on it. We just cleaned it up. We um, wiped and um, reloaded. So how in the world is a new computer messed up again? And it stumped me. I had no idea how this poor user kept calling us and saying, I can't work my computer. It's got a mind of its own. So doing like some amateur detective work, I like looked at some of the logs and looked at some of the the problems on um, this person's computer. And it's been a while, so it's some kind of great, but it like turned out that this person's computer was getting infected because of a compromised Linksys router. Yes, yeah, somehow this router was left open. Its, its ports were open and it was open to the internet. So basically an attacker 
sent some bad malware to it, and the Legrotter was used to command and um, control this person's computer. And it was crazy. It, it would turn this person's computer, you know, into a bot as a part of a, a much bigger botnet. I thought this was the coolest thing in the world. So like I said, I dug head into it. I was trying to look for jobs in my area. There were no cybersecurity jobs where I lived and worked at the time. This was in Lafayette, Louisiana. I mean, there was no real demand for this. So what I did was I like looked around for like cybersecurity in the state and I couldn't really find anything. And then I, I was like, okay, if I can't find a job, maybe there's a club or a group that I can join. And it turned out that there was a group and it was called ISACA, ISACA Baton Rouge. I like remember being home in Atlanta during Christmas and I was getting in touch with them saying like, hey, I am want to get into this field. I come from a sysadmin background. I don't know how to go about this. I'm just trying to get my own foot in on the door. So ISACA was holding elections that January and one of the roles listed was for webmaster. And I said, well, I've, I've made some amateur web pages in the past. This shouldn't be so hard. So I contacted them and then, you know, about two uh, weeks later, they said, okay, Ian, you, we've taken your nomination. The election is going to be in um, the end of January. So what I did was, um, I took an afternoon off work and I drove to the election in Baton Rouge. It was about a 45 minute drive and I am showed up. This was the meeting where they were going to elect all new officers and I didn't know anyone. When um, they were going through the different positions, you know, each person had to like stand up and say who they were and why they were running. And uh, I like stood up and said, hey, my name's Ian. I want to be your webmaster and I could use your vote. And I'm also, you know, trying to get into cybersecurity. I like said that. And that was my pitch. It lasted for about 30 seconds. Then I won. And it was crazy because I was going up with um, someone who was the like um, prior webmaster was just hoping to like be it again. So somehow I won that election i became webmaster and at the end of that board meeting one of the employees for you know blue cross blue shield they came up to me and said hey um do you have your resume and i said i can get it to you and i gave it to that employee and got my foot in the door maybe two weeks later and and uh, been working cyber security ever since so what do you currently do now I work as a consultant for cybersecurity. So basically I advise customers on insider threat projects. That's my primary responsibility. It's to help companies establish and set up insider threat programs. Companies do not want data leakage. They don't want their sensitive data, you know, being um, X filled out or, or being sent out. And I advise on the best practices, on software to use, on the tools to use and help them, you know, kind of turn DLP programs into insider threat programs. And 
part of my job is to get all the different stakeholders involved. So that's privacy, that's HR, that's actually having business and people from the executives to have buy-in to actually make these programs grow legs because without the executive buy-in, these programs will die on the vine. So, so that's kind of what I do right now. So Ian, your phone over there, does it say 5G or 5GE at the top? It says none of the above. I don't have 5G. I've got uh, LTE. I've got LTE. And in fact, my phone doesn't support 5G. But if your phone does support 5G, know that it might be fake. It might not even be real 5G. And let me tell you why. Because um, 5G is a real thing. You know, it's fifth generation broadband. And it's, you know, it's an increment above 4G, just like we had 2G, 3G, 4G. Now we've got 5G. Due to clever marketing, you know, all 5G is not 5G. My like biggest example of this is um, AT&T. So if you're in the States, AT&T is um, one of the big phone companies here. And their 5G is not actually 5G. It's a rebranding of your signal bars. It's basically, you know, it's LTE. Except they've um, just changed that to say 5GE. And the E stands for evolution, but it's not actually real 5G. You are still getting your LTE speed. So don't be fooled because AT&T's 5G rollout, it's tiny. It's, it's in no markets. My advice is wait on 5G until the 5G modems don't run so hot right now and get 5G. And there are phones from like Samsung that have 5G, also some from OnePlus and also from Huawei. But the um, Huawei 5G phones, you know, will not work here in the States. But 5GE, it's not real. So don't even pay for it because you're actually paying extra each month for that 5G. And um, you're not paying for any like real enhancements. You might get 5% increase in speed, but it's um, not worth the actual um, battery loss or drain that um, you will have. Like I said, it's um, just marketing gimmick. There is real 5G though. And um, it comes in like two um, different flavors. There's like the low spectrum and the high spectrum. And it's how it's actually delivered. Now, you've got T-Mobile, and they say they've got 5G all over the country. But again, their 5G is maybe like 4G plus. Again, it's not really worth the extra price you'll pay for it because they use the low band antennas, you know, which, which means that these um, antennas are, are not propped on top of these huge buildings. There is no line of sight. It's a more of a wide spectrum. A, like wide band of 5G. So you um, do get it more places, but the um, difference between 4G and 5G is maybe an extra 20 megs download, not the maximum 5G that was promised. If you do want the maximum 5G, you want to get a phone from Verizon. But again, there's still more caveats where basically you have to stand in the exact perfect place to get those 1000 megabit downloads, you know, second speeds or those gig download speeds. You have to stand in the exact perfect spot to get it. And if you step to the right or you step to the left, 
boom, your um, speeds will go back down to 4G speeds. And it's not in many different places yet. It's still being rolled out. It'll probably still be two years before it's deployed across the actual US. And again, those same caveats exist where right now the like chipsets are big and they run hot. I would wait until at least the like third gen 5G before you actually make the switch. So unless your phone has a second battery, you are gonna be draining it or you're gonna struggle to get 5G. One of the promises that they said was like, hey, get 5G in um, the NFL stadiums. When they when they even did that, they're, they're like, okay, we've got it here, but guess what? Less than 1% of people or less than 1% of, of um, consumers have 5G because 4G works good enough. Now, the um, promise is there for HD download, HD movies, games downloading super fast. It's following the same cadence as the 2G rollout, 3G rollout, 4G, as well. It's going to take time for this to actually, you know, get good enough for most consumers. My tip is to say, you know, hold off on that phone purchase. You don't need 5G yet. Your 4G will be just fine. And in fact, you know, most people still connect to Wi-Fi somewhere. So, you know, once 5G is everywhere, it'll be awesome. But the other thing is you have to have about 20 times the number of antennas for 5G to make sense. Because like I said, it's that fine where a foot to the left or a foot to the right, your 5G signal goes away and it drops it back down to 4G. So, and the other thing is like neighborhood associations, they do not want these 5G antennas in on their neighborhood. So that's another detriment to the actual rollout. So unless the phone companies can change that perception or like throw them money, 5G rollout here could be a slow process. So hold off on 5G until all of the kinks are worked out. Yeah, I've seen a lot of these towers around certain neighborhoods and I didn't know what they were when I first saw one being erected at the corner of one of the streets I drove by to and from work until I went and looked it up. And it's this 10 foot, 15 foot tower, just this black obelisk jutting out the corner of the street. And I talked to a coworker at the time who lived near where this was being built. And he said, yeah, they were definitely getting pushback from some of the homeowners because the company put that tower up right on the edge of this homeowner's land. And there's this issue where they're not sure if they're in legal means to actually erect this tower and the homeowner's pushing back because he's saying, I don't want this ugly object on my land. And plus you're making money off of it. So are you going to cut me some of this money? Because that happens with large towers. If you own land and a cell phone company wants to build a tower on your land, then you actually get a portion of the, the profit. It's like a profit sharing thing or they pay you for the land. See, that's cool. Like I think people would opt in if they got some type of profit sharing feature, but you have to have so many of these antennas to uh, make it even work right because, you know, the like distance doesn't travel, you know, that far. You have to have like 20 times of these things. And like I said, you know, um, they um, work great if put on top of skyscrapers, but not all of us live in these big cities. So the um, opposite of that is to have them at every 30 feet. I mean, it's that bad. So 5G 
super promising, but it just has a like ways to go. At that point, you're almost better off in metropolitan areas having like a mesh Wi-Fi that everyone can just be on. Yeah, I think that is, uh, I mean, that was the dream. That was um, Steve Jobs' dream when he first tried to pitch the iPhone was to get the mesh Wi-Fi. I think you were telling me that, but yeah, I mean, um, if that is, if that's the case, yeah, sure, folks would opt in, but we chose a different path. The like telcos are uh, pushing it best they can because, you know, new antennas means new phones, means new revenue. So tell me, going kind of off this vein of bandwidth, a lot of ISPs have currently lifted the caps on a lot of their plans across mobile and across home, you know, last mile leg internet, like cable and things like that. Do you think that after this pandemic is over, that we're going to see those put back into place? And I ask this because my feeling is since they've been lifted, my hope is we will not see them come back. That's a good question, DJ. I'm cynical or I have been cynical about this whole bandwidth caps when they started to actually put them on because for what? Are the first 20 years I used the internet, these caps were not even in place. They weren't even needed because there's unlimited bandwidth. These are all artificial. It's a way to nickel and dime me and you. I really hope that they keep these bandwidth caps lifted, or maybe this will be, you know, the excuse for net neutrality to pass. Maybe this will be the thing that says, hey, you know what? The uh, world didn't shut down. The ISPs still work. Nothing actually got worse. So why do we have these caps in place again? Maybe this will help that if enough people uh, protest and make a noise about it. I hope they get lifted. I mean, I um, use a company called Mint Mobile for my cell phone, and they're pretty cool. What they've been doing for this COVID thing is uh, once you get to your data limit, you just ask for more data, and they give it to you. No strings attached. I mean, it's pretty awesome. And they give it to me in um, three gig chunks. Now, normally I only use eight gigs a month, six gigs a month because I am always on Wi-Fi, but I thought that was pretty cool. And I mean, I hope that these fake sanctions are actually lifted for good because the internet worked fine before them and it'll work fine afterwards. Like for me, it's just a easy money grab when one didn't exist and they decided to make um, this artificial limitation just for profit reasons. Now, one thing that we know as IT professionals is total amount of bandwidth used per month does not equal network congestion at any given point in time. It's all about concurrent users. If you have 500 people going down one pipe, then that's going to reach saturation quicker than five people. Now I know that some of the limitation comes from if you have a scarce resource, say one terabyte a month of data on your home line, you may be more inclined to not use as much, which could cut down on concurrent use. But ultimately a total bandwidth cap does not actually stop network congestion. Yes. Yeah, you are right. I am not sure how all this fake narrative got in, um, <laughs> you know, took over, but as I saw these things being placed on Comcast or on Cox or AT&T, I'm like, really? 
this is bunch of baloney. You know, this is this is um totally made up. And like I said, yeah, if um they're all going through that same pipe, yeah, sure, it'll be saturated. But there are multiple pipes, multiple streams, you know, to make up for this fact. So again, I hope the companies do the right thing. I mean, they are still getting their monthly bill for the service. So what is the difference? The thing that points out that it's truly arbitrary is how most ISPs have a clause. If you read the fine print, that says if you want unlimited bandwidth, you pay us 30 to 40 extra dollars a month, or you purchase our highest tier plan and you pay us $120 a month. Yeah. And we will give you unlimited bandwidth, which bandwidth isn't truly the right word, but yeah. we'll look the data cap. Okay. Then if that's the case, then... Why don't they do the same thing with upload versus download speed? Again, all artificial. It's all artificial. Like they could totally um, take off the limits on the upload speed. But again, they like to segment this stuff off and package it where it's just for businesses and you don't, you can't get it because you're a resident. All these artificial rules that they put in place to make the consumer pay more drives me insane. Now you may be interested to hear. I was watching an old recorded version of tech tv from i think around 97 and one of the segments that they had it was between patrick norton and leo laporte patrick norton was raising the exact issue we're discussing now he said that it was starting where they were in california so right in the bay area where some isps were about to start experimenting with tiering their speed so at the time he was explaining if you paid fifty dollars a month i paid fifty dollars a month and we got just the fastest speed that they could provide us which back then was probably maybe half a megabit or a megabit or two and then they were talking about tiering this down to charge different amounts for different speeds and that was like circa 97 so for the last 20 plus years we've lived with speed tiering yeah it's hard to take dg out of the bottle you know <laughs> once it's put in now as people protest or lobby or write a letter to like the fcc there'll be no um changes but i do know part of this is purely an american thing like some of these these same things these limitations do not exist in other countries I was in the Middle East for five years, and some of those countries at the time were just starting to implement LTE, where we had had LTE here in the States for several years. So because they were coming in on the back end of that implementation, they were actually able to offer faster speeds than what a lot of people were seeing in America just due to them being able to put out newer technology. So even though they lag behind, a lot of countries, if they implement later, get to actually have the better parts of that. They get to implement what's been tested already and done already. Just like a lot of places talk about, I believe it's uh, South Korea, mm -hmm. perhaps, yeah, where they have insanely fast internet, no data caps. Now they're a much smaller country, the size of your country does not determine the number of users you have. Right. And they're able to support all of their users and all of that infrastructure because it's newer. A lot of our problem comes from having older infrastructure, these companies not wanting to go back and upgrade it unless they absolutely have to or they wait until they absolutely have to because it is a profit drain. It's a net negative, in my opinion, and we don't know their numbers, they're not seeing the gain that they would have on the other side of that implementation 
from giving their customers faster speeds, better data rates and things like that. Yeah, I don't get it. And part of the other issue is here is like, you know, maybe we'll be saved by Elon with his low orbit satellite stuff. Maybe that'll be a game changer because I am do know in like India, they've got something similar where some of these private companies are launching satellites with low latency internet and high speed. And it's a fixed price a month. They're like trying to um, outdo the existing players in the space. So, you know, I think the market is ripe for some fresh blood, fresh talent, you know, fresh innovation. Because right now, yeah, I'm definitely not getting my money's worth. I, they keep trying to charge me um, more money each year and give me less speed. So it, it just doesn't make any sense. That's very true. So tell me, Ian if I'm pronouncing this next word correctly, because I believe you're the expert on this, but is it Scrivener? Scrivener? Scrivener. Yeah, Scrivener. So, um, you know, during this quarantine, I've gotten, you know, back into uh, writing and I like to write books and uh, some short novels, which one day I'll get them published. But this app I use, it's for Mac and PC and for iOS, it's called Scrivener. And I first found out about it from Andy Inatko. And this app is awesome for outlining short form and long form writing. And it basically is a program and you use almost this um, virtual pin board where you pin your ideas onto this pin board, right? And you can have your chapters laid out with the subject of the chapters with your characters the protagonist the sub characters it's um, really great and it's a game changer to me and like writing and it's got lots of different templates you can do screenplays on it kids books adult books ebooks super cool it's got a free 30-day trial i am recommend anyone you know who's kind of bored during this um you know downtime that they might be having to put their thoughts to words see if you can write and just see what comes out and this tool i think it's a game changer as far as getting your ideas from your head and you know into a very logical free flowing form it's much better than you know notepad or microsoft word like this product was made for serious writers and it's not too expensive really they have sales from time to time but you can get at 50 bucks i think you know for the windows version it's um 20 bucks for ios version and you can get a like combination you know windows and mac version for 80 bucks so there is some cost savings there there is a version in the mac app store as well if um, you want to go that route check it out it's called scrivener and that's S-C-R-I-V-E-N-E-R, Scrivener. Very cool app. I recommend it if you want to, you know, get your writing in an outline form and get a book out. So check it out. Check it out. I'll um, try to make a um, YouTube video that I go through my actual writing process and like how I use it to work on writing or like work on projects. It, like it's um, got lots of great features. Definitely. This actually looks like a really cool app. If you purchase one on, say, Mac and Windows or, say, Mac and iOS, do they synchronize? Yes. It's got a back end. It'll support iCloud. It'll support Dropbox, OneDrive. You're like cloud platform of choice. Your, um, your like, writings do sync with you. Well, I think that concludes 
the podcast for this episode. I think so, DJ. We um, did it. Yeah, so episode one. Episode one. How about that? How about that? Got it done.